0: There's this thing in the back of your mind where you sometimes wonder, I feel like computers used to be easier or they were faster or you could do more with less space and and you always sort of kind of dismiss that. The practical voice comes in and says, Oh, come on now, Chris. Computers are great. They do so much more. They're connected to the internet and they have richer content and they're so much, so much more sophisticated. And I go, oh, Yeah, you know what? Your practical self, you're right. You're right. But then you try out like Haiku OS, which is it's from an era that almost feels like an alternative universe, the way personal computers could have gone, and you realize that things may actually have been better, and they were way ahead of their time. I, I didn't really expect to have this, but it just hit me in waves as I was trying out Haiku this week. It is another way of doing computing that I think was better. Like, they they nailed it back then. If, if BIOS, or BOS, however you like to say it, had gotten the user desktop share that Linux has today, you know, something that's not... Substantial, but it's respectable and sustainable. If BOS had achieved that back in the late 90s, early 2000s, they would be the most advanced, sophisticated operating system on the planet today because where Haiku is at right now is phenomenally mind blowing. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 269 for October 2nd, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's post-test barbecue and pre-switching to OS. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. We have a really fun episode today. In fact, it was one of these special episodes where I jumped on a train, took a ride down to Seattle, and met up with Wes in his home turf, so that way we could brainstorm about the show over lunch and on the drive up, at least that's our excuse. Worked pretty well. It did actually work really well. Thank you for the ride, by the way, that was great. I I really enjoyed it because I could work on the train the whole way down and prep today's big, big show. So coming up, we'll get into some community news that I think is gonna pique your interest and things that we should probably just keep an eye on over the next few months. Plus, we'll look back at what some may say was the heyday of computing. When everyone hated Microsoft, and BOS was possibly going to be a thing. And then we'll look forward now with the new release that the Haiku project has just put out after a really, really long time. And we'll try to make the case for Haiku and why you should care. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, what's the point? I hope we answer that today. Then we'll give you an update on our ThinkPad T480s. My thought on this is what's the point of doing a review? if you don't follow up after using it for a while, and tell you about some of the road bumps you've hit. And some of these apply to multiple breeds of laptops from several vendors. So we'll get into that, do a little follow up there. Then we'll tell you about some of the new things we set up, the VM environments that we're doing, and some of the tools we're using to try to manage those VM environments on our laptop. And then last but not least, a little bit of a tip. We've talked a lot about the LVFS project, Well, today we're going to talk about doing LVFS the hard way. So perhaps you're not a GNOME Shell user. You don't have GNOME software. How do you get all of those great firmwares onto your machine and get your firmware updated if you don't have GNOME software? How do you do it? I I want to know. We'll tell you how to do it. It's just a few couple of easy commands that are probably already installed on your machine. And you can update your firmware from the command line, which is the proper way to do it. (laughs) It's the proper... Come on, that's the proper way to do it. Well, we can't go any farther, though, without bringing in our virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings, mumble room. Hey, hello. Hello. Good morning. Wake up and smell the coffee. (laughs) We got a great turnout. Brent is in there. Brandon is in there. We have two Erics, Eric and Eric the IT guy. Mr. KP, Mini-Mech, Ryan Sipes returns for a second show in a row. And Sean's back, too. And Sean, you've been here for a while, too. So, guys... Thank you so much. That Mumble Room is open. You can find out more by just Googling Jupiter Colony Mumble, really. There's a setup guide. and You just have to pass a mic check and have headphones, learn how to use push to talk, and you can join the conversation in the show. Next week is going to be 270. be, what? Re- be really awesome to have a great showing. Yes, it would. Come join us. It's lots of fun. We did do the test barbecue after last week's episode. It went pretty well. There was one dynamic situation that, all in all, all things considered, went pretty well. Wes brought a surprise sous vide, but the the sort of dynamic situation that had to be dealt with was the brown bear. You see, uh, oh boy, I, he uh, myself um, not a big fan of the schnapps, but brown bears recently discovered repliments, which he's a pretty big fan of, and it's uh, it's pretty strong. So we, we you know we had to we. We discovered the boundaries of how much booze should be at the barbecue. So we'll get that right on the next one. It's an
1: important thing to work out because, well, <laughs> the results could have been disastrous.
0: Yeah, everything went fine. Everything went fine. It all went good. Only small damage. We're, we're healed now. Had some good conversations, though, in the meantime. Speaking of great conversations, before we get into the community news, I just wanted to put out there that if you've been wondering why was Chris gone, what happened to him, why is he talking about himself in the third person, All of that gets explained in this week's, or last week's, I suppose, User Air, episode 49, not dead yet, air.show slash 49. I talk about my recent brush with death and uh, (laughs) what happened to me while I was in Texas. And then also um, we get into some bigger questions about Windows affecting bare metal Linux adoption now. And it's a pretty great episode. The guys invited me on to tell my story about uh, my near brush with death. And I had a great time hanging out with Dan and Popey and Joe. And I, if you've been wondering what happened, I invite you to check out user air, slash 49. But with that out of the way, let's get into some community news. I've had a, an interesting conversation over the last week and a half with System76, and uh, they, they've released publicly now information. It's just a bit of a tease at this point, but it's, it's piquing my interest. Posted just recently on the System76 blog, they announced, quote, System76 is releasing a new open-source computer available for pre-order next month. Hmm. Really now? Yeah, yeah. An open-source computer. Yeah,
1: okay. Well, so their CEO, Carl, posted a few days ago on Twitter that at this week's Open Hardware Summit, they'll be showing off this soon-to-be-released open hardware desktop, and it might be called Thelio.
0: Yeah, it looks like it will, and there's not a ton of details yet. We know that System76 has been spinning up a warehouse where they're going to build their own systems— but you, you know, you're left with a lot of questions, and I'm kind of a naturally skeptical guy. So it's like, is this x86 based? Is this going to be a risk computer? Because really, you'd have to go risk five to go. F- I mean, I would right, think, yeah. or you know, or is this something about the the binary blobs that'll be required to run it? Like, what is the definition of fully open source here? What does that mean? And I I haven't gotten a clear answer from them, but. I did get an invitation to go out and visit towards mid-November-ish. I'm not quite sure. Somewhere in the November month to actually see the machine in person. So I, I'll be able to see it with my own eyes and see if it boots and what it is. But I I think this is a pretty exciting opportunity because they're in a unique position to deliver on something like this. And it is obviously going to resonate with a core audience that they are already well-established with. So there's there's a lot of possibilities here depending on how free this thing is, and if they're able to live up to expectations, I think. Right,
1: these are goals that we talk about all the time that we wish, you know, when we're reviewing laptops, these are things we complain about, but what does (laughs) it actually look like? It does seem like they're having a lot of fun setting up all their facilities to make this thing, so
0: maybe they'll just get to have fun playing with their new hardware. It's it's an unbelievable, mind-boggling, honestly panic-inducing investment, if you think about it. I don't... Carl must be... um, A brave man because they had a very nice office in Denver uh, and to move all of the operations into a warehouse and then really, you know, be learning how to set this thing up and how how to manage a warehouse while at the same time also trying to get new products spun up. I get overwhelmed at the idea of how do I even lay out a warehouse to manufacture computers? Like that detail alone is overwhelming to me, not even to consider the fact that I've, it's this massive financial investment for a business like system 76 and moving your crew and having them set up in a new location is a massive work culture change for them. Like every single level, this is a very big gamble and it could pay off very well for them. It could position them as a particular kind of leader in this market uh, and it also could fail to gain enough traction to make everything sustainable. Like, and it's not the only machine they're going to make out of this place. But it is fascinating to watch. And I'm kind of glad they're the ones doing it because I couldn't imagine anybody else pulling this off really.
1: right. It does seem to be like them living their values to some extent. And if, yeah, if a company's going to do it, well, system seventy six has talked the talk for sure. So,
0: Ryan, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I notice you're not tagging me in Mumble uh, to say anything about this. Do you have any thoughts in general on this topic?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, it's a great company and this has been a big goal of theirs for a while. And and uh, I know that everyone there is really excited to do it. And if somebody's going to
0: pull it off, uh, I'd love to see somebody who cares as much about the open source ethos as, as they do be the ones to do it. You know, you can almost run for office with that answer. That is a that is a very good answer. I had to be careful. It's a safe answer, but I know what you mean. I follow you. All right. Well, uh, let's keep going. Let's talk about something that uh, Haiku has apparently nailed already. <laughs> oh
1: yes. Okay, that is true. Now, Chris, you might be familiar with a little distribution known as Fedora. Oh yeah. Okay, well, then you probably know Fedora 29 is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of goodies coming out there, including, well, you know, some of that work they have done optimizing battery life. One exciting thing I noticed, Fedora 29 is looking to provide a Flickr-free boot experience. Flickr-free, you say? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the goal we've been waiting for. You get it on those other operating systems even some surprising ones, but even with, like, fancy Plymouth
0: setups, there's still a little flicker left. You know, it's one of those intangibles, too, because you look at it and go, well, who cares? You know, but then when you power up a system and it, the entire process is smooth and flicker-free, there is a intangible cohesiveness to it that feels polished and complete and it uh, the, the opposite of rough. Like, when you see it flashing... It feels like you can kind of see where the tapes holding it together like the little rough. Exactly. Yeah, the connection points. Yeah. And uh, I I kind of commend Fedora for just plugging away at this now for what feels like a freaking decade. But they've had a lot of curveballs. You know, uh, the premise of this long-desired flicker-free boot is to maintain the same resolution and mode set from the system boot through the desktop loading without any of those unnecessary mode set operations that will cause your screen to flash or sudden graphics changes in order to provide this whole smooth experience all the way.
1: Yeah, they've got a great video showing what it looks like. And it looks like what you see on, you know, other operating systems. But that motherboard logo, whoever your your system manufacturing, well, it it just stays on the screen and then your
0: operating system loads. Oh, so they're doing it, they're doing it through an EFI frame buffer, really. So it's not like they're putting a Fedora logo up on the screen. Right. Now that may there may be some options to add, let's say,
1: additional overlaid graphics on top of the logo, but the whole idea and, and the work they've done is that whatever the The system has drawn at the very start. You keep that buffer, and you just add things on top or hand it off, let's say to Grub or to the kernel.
0: A lot of my machines, not all of them, but a lot of my machines let you replace that logo, so you could put a Fedora logo in there. Perfect. You know, or just screw with people and put like a Debian logo in there, so when they think they're booting their, (laughs) just there's a lot of fun (laughs) you can have with that. Uh, There is a caveat to this story, like many of these new shiny things. there still is work that has to be done to get this working with Radeon or NVIDIA drivers. So it's Intel only at the uh, moment. Not uh, not too unusual there with that. But from the unusual department, this is a big secret that we've heard rumors about. I think we covered them back in March on this show. So don't tell anybody about this one. The
2: cone of silence.
0: All right. Now that it's just us kids... Google is working on bringing game streaming to the Chrome browser. And this could have massive implications for desktop Linux. All of the other places out there like TechCrunch and The Verge are talking about Chrome OS. But screw Chrome OS. Think about desktop Linux in general. Because you know this is going to be a feature that lands in Chrome. I mean, we're talking about H.264 decoding, some super fancy input uh, management. Right. And we're talking about technologies that are going to be a general stack that gets baked into Chrome itself. When you take just the native library of Steam plus now what you can do with Proton or what you will be able to do in the future and then you combine it with this Google Stream project where it's going to probably be a whole other category of games. We may be months away from just about every game being available to Linux. The year of the Linux gaming desktop? (laughs) Well, it's really the year of the Chrome gaming desktop, if this is true. Google this week unveiled Project Stream. And while Google calls this a technical test, pay no attention, we all kind of see where this is going. It's a test to see how well streaming a game to Chrome works. And it's clear that this is a foundational technology for game streaming service in general. So far,
1: they've partnered with Ubisoft and are giving a limited number of players access to Assassin's Creed
0: Odyssey for free for the duration of the test. It's U.S. only. You have to be able to handle 25 megabits per second, and you have to be older than 17 to participate, and you have to have an Ubisoft account and a Google account. Um, I don't know if I have an Ubisoft account, but I, I'd make one. So, so you I could signed, sign up yeah, already. I yeah, did. perfect. Did, have you tried? Are you going to sign up? Oh, I already Would, did. yeah. did? Of course. <laughs> we, we probably all did. Really. Um, I'm not so sure about this. I am not as much as much of a doubter as I think most of the audience is about streaming games. I've I've tried several. Nvidia has their own service that uh, works fantastic on the Nvidia Shield, and I've played many a games on that. Just tried it out for like three months. And never really had any issues. I played games I've been wanting to play for ages, but just was never going to install Windows to play them. And they were great. As long as they worked okay with a controller, they were great. This, by the way, this setup will require that you hook up a controller to your Chromebook. Or, oh, Or your machine running Chrome. hmm yeah. And uh, they say either a PlayStation controller or an Xbox. It does seem like it's going to work better for some classes of game. You know,
1: various games are more or less sensitive to different, different input latency, so maybe it's not going to be the best for
0: your, your FPSs, but... It's exciting. Do we want to uh, moan about how big and bloated Chrome is getting? At the, I mean, a game streaming engine in this thing now? They've got remote desktop capabilities. It really is a platform with a browser included.
1: I am curious, like, has there been discussion of, of obviously it seems like right now they're just donating this all, all the compute and GPUs to do this, right, in, in the cloud somewhere? Oh, it's going to be a pace. So, yeah, how what is, what is that going to look like? How much... How much would you pay for that if you didn't have to, you know,
0: yeah, if I get know, a Windows box? You know, if you look at Google's history, oh, that's a good way to put it. You're right. If this could save you a, even a Windows license. Right, because you could set up a gaming machine and do like the Steam streaming, for
1: instance, if you wanted to now.
0: Hmm. I would say the way Google's going to do this is they're going to bundle it with some other service. Like, you know how they have YouTube Premium now, and they have you can, and then when you get that, you also get Google Music with it and things right. like that. They'll bundle, I bet. That could be one way they do this. You could you could just charge separately for the service, but I'm trying to think I like uh, I can't remember the name of that gaming service, OnLive I think it was. Yeah, I can't remember it. Yeah. OnLive. They couldn't make it sustainable. Think about the overhead with this. You have to have racks and racks and racks full of machines with monster GPUs, with incredible network performance, with huge CDN connections. Like, this is not a cheap operation, even if you have 500 users. Just think about think about the load of 500 users playing high-end, 1080p, 60 frames per second, Assassin's Creed. That's a big job for us for a data center. And now, Google it, does have a pretty big head start, right? I mean, they've already got... They're probably one of the few that has an infrastructure to do this at a massive million-user scale. See, OnLive ran into just run costs. They couldn't charge enough. Plus, they kept running into the issue of the game publishers also wanted a ton of money for every time somebody played a game, and they had problems just porting the games to some of the requirements of their platform. So to do this at a scale, you almost have to be making money on the infrastructure with other things. And then the gaming is something you can afford to do. It can't be like the only thing that makes you money. So they've got the infrastructure in place for all the other Google services. They've got the bandwidth to the homes. They've got some, some of their own fiber that, they, that they, they own. Right. And they've got the compute. So it seems like they could probably charge eight to 15 bucks a month and you get access to a huge gaming library right in your Chrome browser. And you hit full screen, you don't even know you're in Chrome.
1: Now the question is do we trust Google of all companies to run a service like this for a long time? Like are they is this going to be a, a test that they do once and then
0: mm, nothing uh-huh. happens? I maybe if we knew more. I if we could just know more about what they're doing here. Like like Ryan points out wouldn't it be great to have the details? Yeah, I was just thinking about
1: the fact that we don't really know how this is running on their infrastructure and you talked about on live, you know, what Did OnLive have a Windows license for every instance that ran a game? Um, Is this using Proton? Is this doing something else entirely? I'd be really
0: interested to know. Yeah, I I wonder too, since they require controllers, they could be the console version somehow, although very doubtful. You're going to want them in a PC platform, I would think. We'll keep an eye on it as we do. It, It gave me the thought that maybe I should consider getting a Chromebook now that they can run Linux apps and soon they'll be able to stream games and they have a Samba file browser in them. part of the zeitgeist, Chris. Well, I feel like maybe I have a blind spot all of a sudden. You know, like I'm not really following that. No, I I don't use them. I don't have one, but I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Let's go back in time a little bit. These days... The conversation around Microsoft is how they've embraced open source. 20,000 developers on GitHub. They just released DOS as uh, open source on GitHub. I think it, what was it, MIT license? I can't remember. But, th- but no pull requests. No pull requests. No, no, thing. no pull requests. But the conversation's really shifted. Azure is dominated now by Linux. Their workload on Azure or Azure is 50% to 60% Ooh. Linux boxes now. Visual Studio Code is a massive project. .NET Core, PowerShell Core, all open source projects. <laughs> huge. Yeah. Really huge. And so there is an understandable kind of cock the head, why do so many Linux users still hate Microsoft? And if you go back in time, all is revealed. And October marks the 20th anniversary of the Halloween documents. In October of 1998, a confidential Microsoft memorandum on Redmond's strategy against Linux and open source software was leaked. And it's, it's sort of just gone away. Now, this, is, this represents, in my view, a tactical Microsoft. One that was looking at a new threat to its business model and being honest with what its advantages were. Um, and I'll give you a couple. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples here. So here's some key quotes from their analysis of uh, Linux. So they say Linux, the Linux OS, could become, in a sense, the next Java VM. And that sounds weird, but they they were kind of right. I mean, back in the mid '90s to late '90s, Java was huge, and now Linux runs everywhere, even on Windows, just like Java. So they they were kind of right. It has kind of become the universal platform. A couple of other things they noted in these Halloween documents, which was so controversial back in the time. How could they say this? Uh, Here's one. An advanced Win32 GUI user would have a short learning cycle to become a productive user under Linux. Oh, boy. Here's another one. Consumers love it. (laughs) Yeah, they do. (laughs) That's it right there. It's a pull quote from the memorandum. Uh, using today's server requirements, Linux is a credible alternative to commercial-developed servers in many high-volume applications. That seems to be interesting. They also note the effect of patents and copyright in combating Linux remains to be investigated. So there is a couple of interesting quotes in here. But which, what I read is a strategic plotting Microsoft that hasn't accepted where things are going yet because this is the 90s. Uh, but they haven't seen anything like this before. Right, was trying to wrap their head around this. But it caused such an outrage in the community that a bunch of anti-Microsoft camps came up. And there is a lot in these memorandums, including doing damage control, where Microsoft develops an emergency response team to cope with Linux conversion announcements. (laughs) I'm sorry, conversion announcements. When people announce they're converting their systems over to Linux, Microsoft would create a strike team to try to help mitigate that. There's some good stuff in there including the Get the Facts campaign, which really got people riled up. Do you remember that? I forgot about that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Get the Facts campaign and the total cost of ownership, which really riled up. Got to have that TCO. Like, how dare Microsoft talk about the total cost of ownership when we're offering a free operating system for life? (laughs) You know, it was just great. And it really puts you in that mindset of the 90s. And it was fun to revisit, but you really can see how things have changed, how far things have come. Well, not everything. Some things may have been better in the 90s. I hate to be that guy. So let's go with the 2000s. In fact, let's go with March 2000. In March of 2000, one of the best operating systems ever released to humanity came out. And it was called BOS R5. It was the final version of BOS from B Incorporated. It came in two varieties, professional and personal. And this was the release that I got my hands on. It was also the first release of BOS for the x86 platform and made freely available to download. So check, check, check for me, right? You would download it, or you could order a CD-ROM. And if you did that, it would ship with legal encoding and decoding for MP3. On a live CD, a (laughs) live CD. So it was a very well-designed operating system, I felt, but my bias was I didn't grow up with DOS in the home or Unix in the home. After the early computer eras, after like the, you know, the trashes and, the, and, the, and the, like the early consoles, I jumped on a Mac because my mom was a graphic artist. So she got herself an old. That makes sense. This is like the black and white days of Mac OS. It's like Mac OS System 1 or it's just, I don't, it's just, I don't know what it was called back then. And it had some simple advantages to it. If you wanted to extend the operating system, you would take an extension file and you would drag it in the extensions folder. And if you no longer wanted that functionality or it conflicted with something else, you would just go into the extensions folder and you would move it out. And then it would no longer, your system would no longer have that. If you wanted to install an application, you would just drag it into a folder and it was installed. There was a simplicity to it. If you needed to get access to your hard drive, you could just plug it into another Mac. It would mount right there on the desktop. You could move files around. You could even copy over the system folder, reboot, and now boot off of that system folder that you just copied over there. It was remarkably simple, but yet pretty sophisticated for its day. It also had a lot of issues. It wasn't properly threaded. It crashed all the time. But an intrepid group built BOS around some of those same concepts but they built it to be multi-threaded at a ridiculously fundamental level. And they created a file system that even Redmond had to dream about, something that was database-powered. They created a system that was powerful, very fast, very stable, Unix-like in a lot of ways, but simple in a macOS classic way. But unfortunately, they just weren't successful. They just couldn't really be sustainable. And you do wonder what things would be like if they had been successful. And that's where the Haiku project comes in and brings us all something wonderful. If we can take an afternoon or an evening just to play with this free software. And they've finally released another beta release.
1: Yeah, it's been, well, almost six years since Haiku's last release. Yeah, November 2012. That's kind of too long, and it makes you worry about a project, but... After all that time, there are a ton of new
0: features, and we have a brand new beta. Haiku is really now its own project. It's a continuation of the philosophy and themes of BOS, but mostly it's its own thing now. But it does still have some of that uh, heritage. Uh, For example, it has two flavors, 32-bit and 64-bit. The minimum requirements are an Intel Pentium 2, or AMD Athlon, 256 megabytes of RAM, and you need at least an 800 by 600 screen, and they recommend 3 gigs of storage. I think I got that. (laughs) Yeah. Now, their 64-bit version they recommend an i3 at least and 2 gigs of RAM and 16 gigs of storage. But some of the things they've introduced in Haiku are delightful now. They've introduced Haiku Depot, which is probably the biggest change in the way that you work with Haiku. They have a legitimate package management system, and Haiku Depot sits on top of that. And it's very easy to use. Lots of cute applications in there, as in QT. It's nice. And pretty fast pretty com- pretty complete too and it it has and it matches it with a command line um but the cool thing is is like the Mac classic some packages are merely activated they're not installed and that unlike the classic Mac means you can do even more with Haiku the bootloader has been given some capacity to affect them so you can now boot into a previous package state like say you have a bad update or you can even go in and blacklist an individual file, which is just stored in a settings file. So if you want to mount the BOS drive from another system, you can go in there, blacklist an individual file, plug the hard drive back into the machine, boot up, it's done. That is that's that's fantastic. We don't we don't really have that feature now. No. No, and of course it's got all the other kinds of nice advanced features too, like disk transactions for managing packages. Then you can not only not only does it do it there, but it's all transactions written to the file system. Uh, you can thus also manage installed package sets on non-running Haiku systems. And accompanying the package manager is a massively revamped port system that has moved from an organized array of build scripts to a well-oiled, full-fledged port street, containing a wide variety of both native software and software that's getting ported to Haiku. It's a good list of stuff in there, it too. It really is.
1: And, I mean, you can, you can use that, too. It has Wi-Fi support. They've borrowed the network stack from FreeBSD, so you've got
0: all kinds of networking goodies in there. And here's another example of cleverness. Haiku's native remote desktop application is slick. Unlike VNC or other bitmap-based protocols, Haiku's remote desktop forwards the drawing commands from the host system to the client system, which for most applications, and pretty much all of them except for video, consumes significantly lower bandwidth. It's similar to how pre-compositing X11 operates, or it's, Pretty close to how Microsoft's RDP operates, where you don't send the bitmaps, you send the draw commands, which are just commands, and then the client actually does the drawing locally. You don't need any special server. As long as you have
1: SSH access, you can do this. And you get a native client included with Haiku,
0: but there's also an HTML5 client you can run in any web browser. And we've had some fun with it. Uh, we tried it out on this uh, Dell that will be the Precision laptop that we're going to try to review next week. We were going to review it this week, but we we're going to try to review it next week. We loaded on that with the 4K screen. And I also put it under uh, virtualization on my Lenovo, which I'll talk about more about my virtualization setup. But I was pleased to see that they have made modifications to the new release to support virtio, bus, and drivers. So it works pretty great under QMU and KVM. I did have to make a slight change to actually have the mouse input work well. So if you want to try out Haiku and you just want to run it under VM, it'll work pretty good. It's snappy, yeah. But if you're using like Vert Manager and your mouse is jumpy, go into the details of the virtual machine that you have Haiku installed, go to add hardware, and then input, and then add an EV touch USB graphics tablet. And the reason why you do this is it forces... Vert Manager to operate with an absolute mouse resolution instead of like a guesstimated mouse resolution because it thinks maybe you're dealing with a tablet or something. I don't know. And that made my mouse nice and smooth under Haiku, under VM. So if you want to try it, that's a way to go. So it's nice. It's really, really nice. But you might be wondering what's really so great about it besides the simplicity, the speed, the stability, and really the cleverness of it. Yeah, I already run a tiling desktop on my Linux computer,
1: Chris. Yeah. Like, what, do I, what am I getting Wait, here? What are you getting
0: here? Well, eventually, someday, maybe, no. Um, Actually, what you see is, like I was talking about earlier, it's almost an alternative universe of the way computing could have been. And you can't help but observe just how far ahead of everyone they were. And they're able to pull off some stuff that we still haven't nailed down in Linux. Like, for example, Haiku has a series of kits, and it's all explained in the B-book, which will have linked in the show notes. But they have like an application kit, a device kit, a game game kit, an input server kit, the mail kit, the network kit, these are all essentially kits that are starting points for developers. The application kit, for example, is is classes that establish an application as an identifiable entity One that could cooperate and then also tells it how to communicate with other applications, all described in the application kit. If you want to connect an input device to Haiku, there's a device kit that describes how you build that for Haiku. And it's all out there. Everything from how the windows should be drawn on the screen to the way they should look to how you communicate with the network stack or draw OpenGL on the screen. They have all of it out there for developers in a clear documented, communicated way that's been stable for years now. Yeah, like imagine if MSDN was actually helpful <laughs> yeah. and included and in a book on your OS. Just right there in a bookmark that you could just go read. It is it is really smart. The things they've thought about, you have to wonder why they haven't taken off. And that's why after all this time, after after being failed in the early 2000s, that's why people are still excited about this because it is something that is truly unique and you can actually put your hands on it. You can use it.
1: Yeah, it's it's a living entity. I mean, yes, you can virtualize it, but you can boot it. We, we got it booted, plugged we plugged it in a mouse and the keyboard, and it, and it worked. You can get Wi-Fi working if you have just the right hardware. So you can get a feeling for for the ideas here. And I think there are still some ideas that we could stand to use. We don't need to just leave this in the waste bin of history. Yeah, It's complete and integrated in a way that I mean, you know, the, the the BSDs explore this a little bit more, but it's just so different from a, a traditional
0: Linux desktop. It was almost the future Mac OS. Apple, and I think this is one of the reasons that B Incorporated failed, um, and you could probably find out more if you just go read their Wikipedia page. But my recollection goes like this. Apple was in serious negotiations to use BIOS as the next Mac OS, And that was until Steve Jobs came back to the company, which brought along Next with it, and then they based macOS off of Next. But they were in early communications with B. When Steve came back, the decision hadn't been made to drop B yet. And so while Steve was still interim CEO of the company, they evaluated B, they tried to hire Linus, and they evaluated Next. And the issue really came down to is the people on the team that had joined now coming from Next, like folks like Scott Forstall, were familiar intimately with how Next worked. And so they had an internal team that just knew Next. And so that was what they decided to build macOS 10 off of. It was almost BOS, though. It was almost BOS for a time. And if that would have happened, we would have it. Incre- of course, it would be locked down to Apple. So it wouldn't be as exciting. Because this, you can load on a brand new Dell Precision, or you can load it on a Pentium system that's 32-bit. So it's a, it's a much, in, in a way, you get a lot more fun with it. And after using it, I, I really felt, I wish this was the operating system I could deploy to friends and family who don't really like to use computers, but use them as a tool and strictly a tool. They facilitate some singular purposes for them. They need to do just something in the web browser, maybe print something, maybe scan at most. And they want a computer that just runs and is very simple to understand. This... Haiku OS is so easy and simple to understand that you begin to just instinctively navigate it within five minutes of using it. It's it's obvious, it's non-offensive. And consistent.
1: I think that's the other thing, right? There's like a base set of
0: abstractions, and they're used everywhere, and they're all tied together. Which is probably responsible from those kits. And so that kind of thing, I think, works really well for that type of user base. And my hope for Haiku is that they... They get more people trying it, maybe they get more people into the project, and they don't have to go so long between releases. And maybe we could actually someday get a Haiku 1.0 that is deployable to end users.
1: Yeah, and there is, I mean, there is a surprising amount of software on there, things like LibreOffice, right? You can get
0: real work done. Which was, for me, that was the killer thing for, for BOS R5. When I was using it back in the early 2000s, they did two things. Is they let you install BOS from within Windows, Ooh, which was really high, slick. high tech, right? Especially back then. The other thing that they had is Star Office. Remember that? Remember Star, Star Office? Star Office. Those are the days. I was trying to advocate that my school district because I was an employee then, and we were. I saw the i I saw the amount of money that we were spending on Microsoft licensing, and I just said, "Let's let's use something else. Let's use Star Office." And I was advocating at the time for Star Office and. I can't, I can't remember if I was actually by then. I don't think I was pushing for the Linux desktop yet, but I was like, we got to stop paying these $300,000 Microsoft Ugh. bills. And uh, that was just the tip of the iceberg. And so Star Office was like, that was my, my foot in the door. I was like advocating Star Office. And so when I saw that that was available for BOS, I, I, was, I was a match made in heaven. I had the main office suite that I was trying to get everybody to switch to, and I had a great desktop environment that you could install on the existing x86 PCs. Ugh. Sounds a lot like Linux now. And yeah, so there are some apps. LibreOffice is out. They have a web browser that is uh, based on WebKit that they had somebody work on, I think near full-time as part of a Google Summer of Code. They've gotten a few Google Summer of Code sponsorships over the years, and that's helped out a lot. But it's so neat, and it's really worth checking out. It's not going to be your daily driver. You know, ours gave it a go, And uh, it didn't really work out so well for the author over there. It's pretty funny. Uh, Sean Gallagher tried to use Haiku for a week to get the job done, and uh, it uh, sort of failed on him pretty hard, mainly around the browsers. They just weren't able to do things like some of the Google apps that he needed, like Docs and Gmail just didn't work super well. Uh, Web Positive was also, that's the new browser, also not so great. But he noted something of interest. Of all things, the Swift programming language has been partially ported to Haiku, thanks to a Google Summer of Code effort. I think they're
1: working on Rust as well. So, hey, maybe some of the future apps will run just native to Haiku.
0: Yeah, and OpenJDK was already ported. So if you can put up with the email client that's a bit bare bones and the web browser that won't support all the websites that you want to go to and limited applications, you might be able to use it for a week, but uh, Sean Gallagher over at ours wasn't able to pull it off. I didn't try. I don't. I don't look at it as a. I don't think it's fair to compare it to modern desktop Linux or Windows or Mac OS. It is. It's more of like going to a museum that's being refreshed and rebuilt. It's. It's a historical adventure. You're you're going spelunking here. You're not trying to make it your new desktop home. But, I gotta say, you know, if in another six years or so they release something that is usable on the desktop with, maybe Firefox, like an actual Firefox browser or something. I'd be pretty tempted to give that a go again. I, I think they could really have something special there. So we'll have links in the show notes for all of that. You can see everything that we've uh, tried, including um, some fixes to get it working a little bit better under virtualization. It's
1: really easy to give a go. Yeah, it works great under virtualization. And yeah, you can just, you know, etcher or DD the ISO that they provide to a USB disk if you want to try it out live. So, yeah, it's pretty
0: neat. It's it's pretty neat. Um I want to now shift gears, though, and talk about these laptops. So we mentioned virtualization. That's, I was doing it on my new T480. I, we did a review a couple of weeks ago. We got these new work rigs. They're identical, Wes and I. And so we did a review on the show. But I thought, you know, after using it for about three weeks after that review, a couple of things have stood out that I would like to amend the review and include. And it's nothing that's a show showstopper, so uh, it's not a big deal. But uh, for me, I'd have to say, uh, in the not pleased category, I'm not so happy with the speaker's They're weaker than I'd like Um, for serious work like editing or recording a show. I'd be putting on headphones anyways. But I'd say if you're looking at getting one of these ThinkPads, one of these thinner, smaller ThinkPads, and I've seen a couple of them now, um, just don't plan to binge Netflix with them. You know, you can can hear your system alerts. You can make a call. It's going to work. You know, I was watching some Netflix on here
1: just this weekend, Chris. Were you underwhelmed? Well, I attached a Bluetooth speaker.
0: (laughs) Very good. There you go. Um, Also, something we didn't mention in the review, but we got the keyboards that don't light up. Now, that said, this is one of my all-time favorite keyboards on a laptop ever now, but these keyboards are not backlit. After some conversations and reading some reviews online, it seems there's two types of keyboards with these ThinkPads, and the one that has the transparent keycaps so that the light shines through, has a slightly softer feel, and I guess the keycaps wear off. And then there's one with an antimicrobial covering, that's the one we have, where the keycaps last longer and it's a little bit better of a type feel, but they don't light up. So that's something I thought I'd mention.
1: Also, I know you've already switched it, but this the function key, control key, it's still, it's... Yeah. I didn't switch it right away, and now my brain is broken. My hands are broken.
0: Yeah, I had, to make a, I had to make a call on that. So on the keyboard, in my opinion and Wes's opinion, the function button is where the control button should be. It's on the far left. You know, the far, far left key, that should always be control, so that way you can just blindly mash it, right? Exactly. On the Lenovo ThinkPads, it's where the function button is. And then control is one button over... And then the worst part is that the
1: sizes are the same. So yeah. you can switch them in, in the BIOS, Yeah.
0: but then your control button is like half the size it should be. Yeah, yeah. That is the, that is the downside. So I had to make that call. They do make it a BIOS-level change. You go in there and you flip it. So obviously they know it's a problem. Right. And I decided to do it sooner than later. I went about three days, and I, I think I went one day too long because I started to remap it in my brain. But if you the sooner you switch it, the, it's just it, it's just easier on you. It's just easier and then it persists between reinstalls. it's just it's the way to go. I did finally run into that problem that we did bring up in the initial review that, hey, some folks have had a problem where their CPUs are throttling. And it wasn't a big problem. In fact, I kind of liked it because I kept my laptop slightly cooler, and I didn't really notice the performance different difference. But I started having a problem when I closed the lid, the laptop wouldn't go to sleep. And it was reporting about thermal, a thermal trigger event. So okay, well let's look into this. So I started digging around and I found this great terminal app that I want to tell you guys about this week. It's a terminal-based CPU stress monitoring utility and it's called STUI, S-TUI, and man does it look slick. And it shows you everything, the frequency of your CPU, the utilization, the temperature and the power and it puts it all on a really nice-looking bar graph that Uh, It persists on the screen for a while so you can get a real sense of the range of punishment you're putting your machine through. And when I started watching this, I did start to see where the CPU was throttling me back, throttling me back. And I thought, well, this is bullshit. So I started digging into this, and yeah, it's a firmware bug in the Lenovo's. But like all things Linux, there is a workaround for this issue that's been posted on GitHub. And this also works for the Dell XPS 9370s, so hot tip there, and a whole range of Lenovo's. And it kind of tweaks what the uh, range of uh, power frequencies are <laughs> that your CPU is allowed to uh, reach. So it's not without some risk, I suppose. And it does require that you disable secure boot. You are mostly just banging some bits into, you know, firmware-controlled yes. parts of memory. So, yeah, maybe some caution. Yes. And you have to disable the thermal deservice. So I did that. So I disabled secure boot, I disabled thermal D. um, and you can turn this script off with a systemd stop command. So it's not like it's the reverse process is just it's easy to undo. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I started up the script and I immediately noticed that my laptop was reaching 4.2 gigahertz um, as it's expected. Wow. Yeah. And I rebooted, and immediately for the first time, as the system was logging in, noticed the fans kicking up. They've never done that before. I haven't heard my fans no. to date, no. No, no, you don't. So if you don't fix this bug, it keeps the CPU running at, like, I don't think it goes beyond 3.5 gigahertz or something like that. Maybe. It depends on your rig. It can go up a little higher. But that actually makes it run cooler, and it makes the battery last a little bit longer. So I did also see a small hit to battery life. Also, it did not fix my suspend issues that I was having that I originally tried to fix. No, really? So yeah. So they're still there. Yeah, and it's weird. It's not every time I close the lid, and I'd say 80% of the time the machine goes to sleep no problem. But I have, I have run into the problem where I thought it's asleep and I put it in the bag. I take it out of the bag two hours later and it's, it up, it's piping hot. Wasted battery. Yeah. and um, Is it only, it's only on battery when this happens? I believe so. Okay. I believe it only happens when it's on battery. I have yet to have it triggered when it's plugged in. I can unplug it after I've put it to sleep and it's fine. See, now I'm just worried. I, this is lying and wait. I'm going to run into I it. Know. I haven't yet. I was worried today on the train. In fact, it, it happened on the train. I, I, was, I was on battery the whole train ride down to see you today. And when we got to King Station, I closed the lid and it didn't go. I watched it and it didn't go to sleep. And I'm like, I want to put it in my bag because we're at the train station. And I'm like, it's not going to sleep. So like, I had to open it back up, put my password in, shut it down, confirm shutdown, wait for it to shut down. And I, you know, I had stuff open.
3: I got to say, Chris, your experience with uh, just niggling little issues like that it mirrors my own. Um, I, and I don't know—I don't know exactly what causes these things, um, but they're super frustrating, right? And they detract massively from the overall experience.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit unfortunate. Uh, welcome back to the show, Alex. Uh, Brandon, you fixed this on your X1 Carbon? Do tell.
2: Yeah. So, have you guys updated your BIOS?
0: <laughs> well, that's where we're going to next, actually. But go ahead.
2: Yeah, and. That fixed the, the initial stuff. And then um, if I was using Wayland at all, uh, it would not go into Suspend uh, at yeah. all. So right now I'm using X11.
0: I believe I'm on X11, yeah. I'm on Neon, so I think that's yeah, yeah. It's X11. Um, so the thing is, the Plasma desktop doesn't yet, although it will soon, have a way to update your firmware from the graphical desktop. You're saying it's it's worse than GNOME. I never thought I'd hear you say it, Chris. Well, the advantage on GNOME is when you go into GNOME software, it's just along with all your software updates is, boom, here's a firmware update. Right. Or maybe you, for some reason, are an XFCE user or, like you say, a tiling window manager. You're not going to get this stuff unless you specifically want to install all the GNOME stuff to run GNOME software. And I don't. So in the case of the T480, the firmware update does not fix this issue, but it does for some systems. But there is a way to do LVFS the hard way. Now, remember, the Li- Linux vendor firmware service is the project that's collecting all of these different firmwares from the vendors and then shipping them down to your machine. And part of that is the FW update daemon, or Whoop. <laughs> <laughs> it's a simple daemon that allows session software, which could be... GNOME software could be Discover or will be soon. It's coming soon in an update. It allows them to check for firmwares on your local system by enumerating the hardware, seeing what their firmware versions are, and then delivering that information back to the client. So in, in this case, we're going to be using the command line. It's designed for desktops, but it's also actually usable on phones and several headless servers where you can just SSH in and you can use these same exact commands to update the firmware on your servers if you want. So, if you want to find out if you have a device with firmware that is supported by FW Update, you have to get on the command line and run the command FW Update Manager get devices. And we'll have a link to all of this in the show notes. Once you get the devices, there's an FW Update Manager refresh command, which goes out and it's like a package repo refresh. It goes out and it gets all the latest firmwares that are applicable, versions that are applicable to your hardware. Nice. Then you can just simply update the command FW Update Manager get updates. It goes out and downloads all of them, and then FW Update Manager update. I'll again, all this will be linked to the so show you notes. just made a guide for me because I haven't played with any of this yet, mm-hmm. but it's it's coming up. Yeah, and it makes it really nice because you can just do all this from the command line. Doesn't matter what desktop environment you have, and it's kind of neat. Like the FW Update Manager, Git dash devices shows you a bunch of cool information about the hardware. Yeah, then and, here's my T480 Thunderbolt controller. Yeah, isn't that neat? And then you do the refresh command to go out and pull down the latest repos, Git dash updates to download them, and then just update. It will download and apply all the updates for your system. And updates that can be live will be done immediately. And then it will also set aside updates that need to run at boot up. And next time you reboot your distro, it'll stage them and apply them.
1: That's that's just fantastic. Isn't wow. It,
0: isn't that great? was this?
1: How, how a, did this happen? Like, in the back room without any of us <sighs> so really good. noticing and now it, not only does it not brick our machines but
0: it yeah. like, it just works yeah and it's a cool it's another cool way to get information about the devices in your system so that's that's all outlined in the show notes um, there's also a really simple easy ArchWiki go figure um, as well as the project's documentation in fact if you just run fw update mgr dash dash help all the stuff is right there it's really super simple to, to mess around with so I, d- I ran that on my T480 and we were fully up to date. Where they shipped all up to date. So and they're pretty new, so that makes sense. Right. We have. Mm. Unfortunately, it's not a firmware update for us. But I have I have read that some X1 users have been able to resolve the issue with a firmware update. So I'm hopeful it might come around to us. And now we know how to do it. So we'll keep an eye out. A couple other things setting up this machine. I decided, yeah, I got this thing with 32 gigs of RAM and e drive. Let's do some virtualization. Right. Right. You got to put this thing through its paces. So I'm trying out two different. Virtualization managers. First and foremost, you got to get Vert Manager. It's the go-to tool for the desktop. So I installed Vert Manager, and that's what I was using for my Haiku uh, review and drive-through, whatever you want to call it. It's not really a review, and it works pretty good. But it's not HTML5 enough. You know what I'm saying, Wes? No, it is not. It feel, you know, I mean, it's nice. It's there, but. Well, it's just not that slick. I actually kid. I, 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 I'm just joking. But it, it, both Wes and I decided to take a little look at Kimchi uh, over the last week, which is an HTML5-based management tool for KVM. And it's designed to make it as easy as possible to get started with KVM and create your first guess. And I like this a lot because it makes it accessible to people that maybe have never really messed around with this before. We have KVM baked into our Linux desktops. I, I don't know how to state this to you. It is, that is an enterprise-grade virtualizer that entire companies base their revenue source off of. In the early days, like back when I was trying out BOSR R5, we had mainframes that did this. This is what mainframes did, and they cost so much money, and they had to have massive support contracts, and they had to have proprietary hardware, and it was a massive investment to have a bunch of virtual machines. And now we have something 100 times better, more powerful, and faster just baked into our Linux desktops. Every Linux laptop, every Linux desktop out there has the potential to access this thing called KVM. You just have to install a few tools. And the power of that is just sort of underappreciated by those of us that have just grown used to it. But when people are coming over to Linux, it's one of those cornerstone features. It's something that maybe they want to try for their work, or maybe it's something they've read about and learned about. And Kimchi makes it all accessible. It, it is a very nice web GUI that sits on top of KVM that makes it simple to manage your VMs. Yeah,
1: I mean, because unfortunately, a lot of the tooling ends up sort of focused around you know the big server cases because that's like probably 99% of what actually runs on KVM, but these days, it runs pretty darn well just doing desktops.
0: Yep. I also, I really liked, I would not never use it now, but back in the day, I when I first was trying to set up Linux, having a tool like even like Webmin, which was a little dangerous, but was very useful for c- c- just kind of closing a couple of gaps. Closing, like I didn't really understand how to do something like under Samba and having Webmin available to help sort of build out that config file, then I could then go reverse engineer what it had done.
1: Right. When you're learning, you just want like a nice
0: GUI that you can explore and poke around and fiddle with options. For my own systems that I run on DigitalOcean, I use Cockpit to manage them. There you go. And I love it. I think it's great. So kimchi's pretty nice. It's a little tricky to get working on Ubuntu 18.04. It requires a package called Python Imaging, which is not in the, at least the regular Ubuntu repo. It might be in Universe. Uh, and it won't install without that, even though it has been replaced by what was it, Python ping or something? Oh, pill, the pill, the pillow, pill. I think is what
1: you yes. end up installing an alternative imaging library.
0: So kimchi could use that, but they have hard-coded in the dev that it needs this specific package. It is available for 1804, so I've linked it in the show notes if you want to try giving it a go. It's still early days for kimchi, but I have a lot of hope that it's going to be a super nice way for people to manage a handful of VMs. You know, imagine something like this on your LAN. You, you throw a machine in the closet or in the garage, and you could use this to replace something like Proxmox.
1: Right, yeah, exactly. And if you just, it's, it's just nice for those cases where like, maybe you don't use libvert on the
3: command line all, all the darn time. You just
1: forget what flags there are. Well, here you go.
3: I'll tell you one uh, other thing I've used this week for the first time was Boxes. Oh, yeah. And uh, I had to install Windows for some stupid reason. I can't remember <laughs> what it was. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> thanks. And I threw the ISO into boxes, and 20 minutes later, or 15 minutes later or something, I had a fully booted, activated Windows 10 system. Completely touch-free installer. Amazing experience. Yeah, if you're on the
0: GNOME desktop, Boxes is so great. I considered installing under Plasma, but I ended up going for Vert Manager. Brandon, I'm curious about your use of Cockpit from your workstation and laptop.
2: Yeah, so I use it to manage virtual machines with the machines plugin. So uh, it basically does most of the things I need. Um, if I need to create, you know, special networks, I have to go to the command line or open up vert Manager uh, to set up networks that are not just the default NAT network Mm -hmm. but everything else uh, is uh, available right in cockpit it's super easy to use you can get access to a console add additional disks to a VM like basically all the things I I would need to use locally
0: yeah and so you use that to manage your own local VMs not even like VMs up on a server
2: just local VMs on my workstation um, for servers and my in my basement, I have, oh, yeah. a I have a cluster of three <laughs> servers nice. that are running. But in that case, I'm running Obert. So As that, one does a, in his
0: basement, right?
2: Yeah. yeah, that's what you do when you have a basement, right? And, <laughs> and, and one gig up, down the Sentry link. Oh, yes. So.
0: <laughs> that is what you do. Yeah, those are the two requirements. A good basement, or in my case, a garage, and a great link.
3: My basement is full of scary spiders that jump. I do not like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. They they got a lot of those down there, Alex. They got a lot. They got them up here in in Washington, too. You can't get away from the spiders in the States, unfortunately. Just don't let the ones with red bellies get near you. That's the one you need to worry worry about. Oh, gosh. The spiders around here have a legal right to marry. (laughs) Let's not, you know what, let's not freak out people with arachnophobia, because I'm one of them, and it's making me a little uncomfortable. There's a bunch of different ways to manage your virtual machines, uh, but... Vert Manager and Kimchi were the one that I thought would be worth talking about, but definitely a good, big, hearty plug for Cockpit because that's what I personally use to manage to manage mine. I mean, you could be hardcore like Wes Payne and just do it all with Q- QMU on the command line and you then VNC it. in and just what's the problem? What's the problem? That's what Wes says. So next week, we should have a review of that Dell Precision laptop. I wanted to give it enough time. I just felt like I hadn't had enough time with it. Um, I did run some pretty hardcore benchmarks. One of the things I'd love to get the audience's feedback on is i'm thinking about trying to trying to come up with a framework to review laptops w- when they're under extreme load so how does it handle thermals does it start cutting back on the CPU to bring the temperature down? How long can it run at max before it has to start caving? I've been testing that on the ThinkPad on the, and on the Dell Precision, and I find that to be an interesting workload because like, every now and then you just need your machine to be a champion for two hours. Right, yeah. And so h- how does it run at full-bore sustainable workloads? Does it start cutting back? I'm curious what folks think about that idea and other things of that nature we could start testing on these laptops because the goal of these reviews is to give you usable information to make a purchase or to defer a purchase or to just reflect on your own setup like I'm not I'm not here to sell a laptop I'm here to try to tell you if this is a reasonable tool or not and so I I'm always struggling to come up with ways to to properly do that benchmarks are one way but what's the real point of those unless unless you could actually compare it to a real world right we workload. want to get closer to
1: simulating
3: something that you might actually do
0: so I'd love ideas on that and tests.
3: I'd love some some objective way of measuring fan noise. Because mm. that really annoys. So, you know, when you hear a MacBook about to take off, that might be different to what an XPS sounds like or something. You know. Yeah, I mean I, I
0: have tools to measure the decibel output of the laptop and I could just get it under load and I could start measuring that. That's definitely something I could check. Uh, that's a good one. And if you guys out there listening have suggestions, just go to linuxunplug.com slash contact. You can send them in that way or tweet me at Chris I'd just be curious to know. I, I showed uh, some recent benchmarks that I was doing, and kind of put a little uh, context as to what I was trying to achieve. And I got some great suggestions on Twitter too. So I've been collecting information, and I've always really kind of wanted to nail this down to try to make it something that even if you're not in the market yet, it's still useful. I I, 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 wanted, I want to try to achieve that. So give me your tips and what you'd like to see, and hopefully we'll have a decent review for you next week. I can't promise that I'll have it nailed by next week, but. Over the next few reviews, as we try to, as we, as we start thinking this way, I think we'll get it. Yeah, get a little more systematic. Yeah, come up with a way to do that. We have so much stuff going on behind the scenes these days, so we'll be talking about some of that as well, some of the changes that we're making to our pipeline and how we're going to open source, all of that. So that's coming in the future, in a future episode as well, as time permits. So we have a lot to get into. But I think that's probably where we'll leave it for this week. We'll try to keep it a little shorter. I'm, I'm flirting with the time formats, trying to see what people like. Tuesdays can be pretty busy. That is true.
1: So you got to get a lot
0: of I guess. Middle right? of the How, week. yeah. People got a lot of shows by the time this comes out. We want, to f- want you to want to fit in Linux Unblocked. Got to get in that sweet spot. And don't forget, next week is 270. We'd love to have you show up in our virtual lug and hang out. Just Google for the Jupiter Colony Mumble Guide. Mumble is free open source software. You can get installed. We'd like it if you have a headset. And with that, a mic and headphones. You know, not just something that's on your head. Not like a tiara. That doesn't count. I mean, you can have that too. No, don't let us stop you. I don't know, unless it has a mic built
1: the in. The nice thing about the virtual lug is you can dress however you want. They come as you are.
0: I imagine most of them are sitting there drinking something, scratching, browsing the web, and chatting. Like you know, they they are probably pretty chill. That's it's, what makes it a virtual party. I know. I should go do that. I should go home. While you do the show, I'll jump in the lug and just see what it's like. I should I should try that one time. But not next week, not not the week after, but maybe someday. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode. Go get more of West Payne at techsnap.systems or at Wes Payne. I'm at Chris LES. The whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you next Tuesday. fun with haiku way more than i expected. i know it was was just so good it's good stuff it's good stuff mumble room thank you guys very much for making it there was one story that didn't make it into the main show that i wanted to share with you guys it just doesn't really have like a direct linux angle but it sure makes me smile there is for some unknown reason now a star trek enterprise shaped gaming pc being built by lenovo How did this happen? Okay, no, no. I don't even need to know. I'm just
1: too excited.
0: Wes, Lenovo is boldly taking computers where they have never gone before. Oh, it's getting cringy already. Uh, With a newly revealed Lenovo Titanium PC shaped like Star Trek's USS Enterprise. The Lenovo Titanium Enterprise NCC-1701A is shaped like the Starship Enterprise, like Captain Kirk's Enterprise, before he just... Oh, I won't spoil it. I won't spoil that part. But let's just say Klingons it, were involved. It's uh-huh. a real beaut.
1: Fascinating. <laughs> Definitely not a trash heap.
0: The uh, technology <laughs> the technology includes a GeForce RTX 2080, an overclocked ninth-generation Intel, 32 gigs of RAM, and a one-terabyte M.2 SSD, and a two-terabyte sol- spinning Rust disk. And uh, they say that uh, it's the perfect... PC for Star Trek enthusiast gamers. I'm thinking maybe we got the wrong Lenovo's, Chris. I <laughs> you know, right? You know, it's it's super uh, lit too, and I mean lit up. Like it's got lights everywhere in the thing. All over the, all over the saucer section, the warp nacelles light up, the deflector dish lights up, and it's on a stand. So like the Starship models themselves, it's on an arm stand, and it's... Kind of shaped like the Enterprise, and the PC parts are all stuffed into it. The cooling is on the bottom of the saucer section. The nacelles are wider and larger than the actual Starship. That's where the bulk of the PC is, is in the primary hull. Oh, yeah. If you're a Star Trek nerd. Uh, and it still looks legit enough that I, I, if I was a big Star Trek online player, if I still did the you Stoked would have podcast, to have it. You would have to have it. Also, KDE Neon on that thing would be pretty. Ooh that'd be pretty good so any, any deets on when, when can we get it where can we get it actually I want you to guess what the price is guess what the starting price is before you've even inspected. it now it's not, it's not insane but it's not cheap I'm going to go with uh, $4,000 that is probably what it would be after I spec'd it the starting price the base price
3: $3,999 <laughs> alright
0: anybody else have a guess this is price is right rule so if you go over you're disqualified anybody else have a guess of what the, Three grand. Three grand, okay. We have three grand. What did you say? Four grand? Yep. Um, I'm going to say three, two, one, zero. Three, two, one, zero. All right. The Lenovo Titanium Enterprise NCC1701 has a starting price of $2,180. Everybody, you overbid, so you all should go buy one now. <laughs>